uh, dates right back to when I was in primary school. So that would have been uh, 11, 12, 13 years old. So I started playing netball. And uh, when I, in year eight, I became the sports captain of the school. Then when I went into what we call secondary school, that's uh, year nine, 10, 11, 12, I took up athletics and uh, failed miserably a bit. Obviously didn't have the speed genes that the rugby players have. Then I took up hockey and uh, I never looked back since then. So when I took up hockey, joined the school team. Then after graduating from there, I went into medical school. So when I entered medical school, I still loved hockey. No intentions of anything to do with rugby, nothing whatsoever. So in medical school, formed the uh, medical school hockey team. Then upon graduating, the, uh, my mentor today, Dr. Robin Mitchell, well, he approached me and said, uh, would I consider trying out for the national team, for the hockey national team? Like anybody else, you jump at the opportunity. So, but my rise to fame only lasted 10 minutes and that was it. <laughs> and uh, I thought, okay, this is total disaster. Maybe I should just focus on uh, doing uh, physio. Then he approached me again to uh, look after Team Fiji as the official physio. So that's when I said um, yes, and uh, the rest is history from there. So in uh, my involvement with rugby dates back to 1987, when uh, Fiji Rugby approached me to be the physio for their team. Uh, at that time, I was a new rookie out of medical school, uh, married, having a young family. So um, everyone would have jumped at this opportunity. But for me, I said yes, but there were conditions that I had uh, put down. And I must say the enabling environment at Fiji Rugby Union at that time allowed all this to happen. So I worked with the team while they were at home, but when they traveled, I did not travel. So we set up networks around the world. When you were going through medical school, did you always, in the back of your mind, did you think maybe I can combine this with my love of sport or is that something just that fell into your lap? It was something that fell into my lap. I thought sports was like anybody else was just going to be like an entertainment type thing. You get a career, you move on and that was it. My initial interest was uh, as a pediatric physiotherapist looking after handicapped children. I spent seven years as a pediatric physio. So that was my original interest to look after handicapped children. After years of applying for a scholarship, which never eventuated, they gave me a scholarship to go and do sports medicine. And then I said, oh, not really. I was not really interested in it. And I was told that if you refuse the scholarship, they would not offer it you know, in the future. So I took it up and uh, the rest is history. The clinic that I run, I run a private clinic. I still have two days a week where I look after and have kids, but with COVID that stopped. But uh, my love for kids has not died, even though sports has been the forefront of my career. So when you were first approached by Dr. Robin Mitchell to, to help Team Fiji, uh, how long ago was that? That one, I graduated in 1984 and he approached me in 1985. So I uh, worked behind the scene, 85, 86, and uh, everything sort of cemented into place by 1987 I was full on with Team Fiji and with Fiji Rugby Union. And so here we are more than 35 years later and obviously still involved with ONOC. Dr Mitchell is of course the president so uh, yes. between hockey and, and ONOC and sport it's been a you know a long partnership and I presume friendship. Oh yes he's uh, he's my mentor both in the professional field as uh, medical personnel and also in the, my role as a sports administrator he's my what I call my go-to person my sounding board. And um, I was very, very fortunate in the early years of my career as a physio. The en environment I worked in was a very enabling environment. I, um, I was asked as a professional to be the physio. I was not asked because I was a woman. And that for me set the benchmark. So when people said, did you struggle? I said, no, because they allowed me to 
create my own pathway. FRU at that time said, you the physio, do what you got to do. So I was very familiar with that type of environment. So they did not see me as a woman. They saw me as a professional. And that's something that I've taken with me and, and I still use it till today. Is that the norm? Is it improving or, you know, were you one of the lucky ones or is... I think I, I must say I was probably one of the lucky ones. No, it's not the norm. It's definitely not the norm. A more majority of women will have it hard. The terrible was I was a professional. So they took me on as a professional. And um, that was the easy part. The hard part was ensuring that same relationship lasted years down the line. So working with FRU in setting up clear pathways to make sure that uh, there was equity and equality in, around the field. I'll give you an example. I mean, over the years, boards changed, environment changed, atmospheres changed, where now I had appointed a female physio to travel with one of the teams. I was asked, uh, do we have another physio? And I said, uh, oh, is she not competent enough? And they said, no, no, she's very, very competent. We just don't want a woman. I had to take a step back. And in my instinct reaction was, you know, if you don't have a physio, you don't get anybody. So, but because of the environment, it changes over time. To work in that environment, I had to, all right, go back, fulfill the look at everything, the whole thing. And then I said, she's a competent one and it's either her or you don't get a physio. Then they asked me, what about you? That's when it dawned on me that they did not see me as a woman. So I had set the benchmark to that level where, so I had to try and create that same environment where they saw other people exactly the same. It was hard work. Uh, some of the board decisions at the time was hard. What got me through was being very, very professional and sticking to my ethics and sticking to my guns. I didn't budge. As a medical practitioner, you learn to be very objective. You don't become subjective. You learn to look at the facts. You learn to look at evidence. And that really helped me survive in the, in the world where things started to change. And uh, so as I said, yes, I probably am one of the more fortunate ones, but that is not the case for the majority of women in Fiji and the Pacific. You've probably been a part of or witness to some pretty incredible moments. Are there any that stand out for you? I mean, obviously you were chef to mission for Team Fiji five years ago when the men won Fiji's first Olympic medal um, and the sevens. Um, you know, clearly the, the rugby teams have done some wonderful things in the past too, but, you know, other sports also. Um, what, what moments stand out for you? For me, the standout moments was uh, when we played uh, South Africa in the quarterfinals in the 2007 Rugby World Cup. We lost to South Africa, but that's when I realised the potential that we had. That's when the, the vision that I had, I wanted to see Fiji's flag fly on an international podium. That's when I realized we could and we will medal at an international event. The other standout was uh, at the Sydney Olympics, sitting next to um, Torpedo, we called him, the speed man in, this, uh, in the pool, and just sitting next to him in the bus and looking at his physique and looking at my physique. And it's like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm sitting here with the number one swimmer in the world and we're just having a conversation you know, about life. And that's when it dawns on you, yes, all these great things happen, but the reality on the ground, we still have to come back to Ghana. We're still human beings. We still have to go through all of that. So for me, the number one catalyst for me was the 2007 Rugby World Cup School of Final. And pinnacle of my career was uh, being the chef de mission to Rio. A lot of people ask me, why didn't I travel as a physio? At that time, when I had that vision in 2007, my initial thing was, yeah, I want to be the physio when we go to the Olympics. And as the years grew on, as I started to develop in my sports admin role, I realized, no, 
I've been to enough Olympics. I've been to World Cups as a physio. I wanted to lead the team. And especially with the setting up the Fijiwak, the high performance environment, I knew that to win the gold medal, we had to move from an amateur level to a professional in terms of sports, sport. Most sports in Fiji are run on an amateur basis by amateurs. So we had to, I realized we had to create a professional environment to really compete at that level. That's when I decided, no, I wanted to lead the team rather than be in the team. I wanted to take charge of it. I lost some good friends along the way. It's uh, not easy. It can be a very lonely journey, but uh, for me, hard work, consistent hard work and having the right team. And having the right team is not easy. It takes time to mold and grow your team. And I suppose this is where my journey as a leader came about was studying, looking at this is what I wanted, see Fiji's flag on the podium. What do I need to get there? How do I get there? What team do I need to get there? And then started planning. So it took us nine years for that to eventuate. When you say losing friends along the way, is that just because you had to make some hard decisions in that leadership role? Yes. Going into 2015 Papua New Guinea, Pacific Games, we had a team size of 500. I had to let go three of the general managers who were under me because they were I mean, they were great in their private lives as individual people who work in their organizations. But when they transferred that to the sport, they saw, I mean, now we've come back as friends. But I've learned over the years is, yes, when you lose friendship, you actually don't lose them. It's just for a short time. If your friendship is strong enough, you later on, you get on with life and you move on with it. But yes, it was from making hard decisions and uh, sticking by my guns in what I believed in. Is, is leadership something that you've always been comfortable with? I didn't realize it until later. And then it was pointed out to me when I did, my, when I studied that, when I did the leadership Fiji program, this is when the, Mr. Parkinson, the, I was doing the interview then he said to me, you are a leader in your, in your own right and you need to take that to the next level. That really struck me as I said, no, I'm not. I'm here to learn to be a leader. That's why I'm doing this program. When he said to me that, then I realized, it made me look back, reflect on what I had gone through. And then I said, oh dear, can't use an S word on this, but oh dear. What he said was really, so that was another profound moment in my leadership journey. Would it come naturally? I think it goes back to me being brought up in a boarding school. I was in a boarding school where, you know, it's not easy being in a boarding school, uh, where you have to work hard. And when I saw things, and going back to my parents' teaching, when I saw things not done, what I thought was not done right, I would stand up for it. So I naturally started standing up for things that I saw was incorrect. Like if I saw bullying happening, I would stand up for the person being bullied, small as I was, but I still did it. So I think it may have been my upbringing as a child, come from a family of 10, 10 brothers and sisters, you learn to stand up and fight. You know, I'm number eight, so you learn to stand up and fight. You want that dress, you want this show, you want that. So I think it goes right back to how you're brought up. And then the rest, as I said, in that leadership journey, it's, uh, that's when I realized I don't see myself as a leader, but the rest of Fiji does. And then I have a responsibility to just make sure that I do deliver. And then you also talked uh, about how, you know, you were not seen as a woman, you were seen as competent, whatnot, but um, clearly you are an inspiration and, and a role model to many women in Fiji and around the region. And you've been recognised as such. Uh, International Women's Day last year um, and, you know, numerous, numerous rewards, too many to mention. Um, 
is that something you're con- is that something you're conscious of as well like being a female leader in Fiji in the Pacific in a sporting environment yes I have to be very aware of what I post on Facebook um, you know it's got to be you know if I didn't have this role I would just blast something on Facebook now uh, everything I do I run it through a few people before I put it out and I'm very conscious of how I present myself what I say what I do because it, it does reflect and uh, this was mentioned to be my my daughter I mean because at home it's a completely different I mean we're not different but you know how we have our disagreements and all that and then I would say oh you know this this person is so and so and she said mom you can't say that if you say that the whole of Fiji will think this person is so and so that's when I realized I have to be very very careful what and how and when I say what I do so I had a responsibility to make sure that you live up to that uh, am I comfortable with it? No, I'm not comfortable with it, but it's a responsibility. And I've learned to take it as it comes and then build it from there. What were your emotions from a Fiji rugby perspective as Chef to Mission watching that gold medal five years ago? And then, of course, just this weeks ago now, if that watching both the Fiji men and Fiji women, the Fijiana winning uh, medals in Tokyo. And I guess for the men, it was expected, but a lot of people didn't think the Fijiana would reached that height and I know they've had an interesting couple of years they didn't just surprise people they were playing every match they're looking you know they looked like they were going to beat New Zealand and they almost did or arguably maybe should have um what was it like watching that from afar Rio my emotions in Rio were very very different to my emotions in uh, watching uh, Tokyo from afar Rio as a CDM actually did not have any emotions I was on the go mode so moved all emotions from myself just bang bang do this this got to be done this so after the games when the prime minister sitting next to me said i wanted this this is done it was like no time to go and celebrate shake the boys hands yes i was happy screaming smiling but same time bang the shield comes on this is what you got to do so did i have time to actually celebrate the win in rio no it was only when i got home and then took that one month off that's when i realized holy crap we've actually done it the emotions with this one was, yes, the boys, I expected them to meddle. The girls, I was, we were quietly confident. We were very quietly confident, especially watch, after watching them perform at the uh, All Sports 7th uh, tournament in Australia prior to the Olympics. Watch that when I saw them play and just following their development behind the scene here, we were quietly confident of meddling. The first game when we lost, it was like, oh, God, what happened there? Then I realized for more than 50% of those girls, this is the first time at the Olympics, and the Olympics is very, very different to the World Rugby Series. Very, the atmosphere is totally different. So it's like, okay, they, they need to get through that emotion. They need to get all of that tension out of their first game, let it go. When we went into the bronze medal, I knew straight away the bronze medal was ours. So that's how confident I was of the girls. And the emotions was, okay, sideline language, sideline language, sideline language. I was, I think I, if I could scream at the television, I could, but I had to remain calm. When I say sideline languages, as physios, when you're on the sideline, you're not allowed to say anything negative. It's all positive because you're the one on the sideline. So it was all positive, all positive. After the game, okay, wait, breathe, walk around, come back next. It was very, very different emotions. And when they won the bronze medal, it was like, oh, my God, I could 
retire and die peacefully now. That was my thing. I, it's all achieved, done. Now I can retire. I'm quite happy to hands up and go. And for the, to see the girls on that podium, that's just another thing. Yes, I loved it when, I mean, don't get me wrong, the boys redoing that gold medal, well done. But having the girls up on that podium, that was um, so stoked for them, so proud of them. What, what do you think they are capable of going forward now? Can they become a force on the World Series, do you think? Do they have enough resources? I think they're capable, to do that? yeah. Resources? Yes, we, we obviously do not have enough resources. Uh, we'd like to have more resources. Um, I'm seeing what they did at the bronze medal playoff. I believe they're very capable, given the right environment, the right atmosphere, the right support, they're very capable of being number one. And I always told Fiji Rugby, the, I had a lot of my friends who were coach, uh, wanting to coach and said, oh, we are playing for the coach for the boys team. I remember telling a friend of mine, why don't you coach the women's team? And he looked at me like, coach, the women's team? And I said, the women will go in the top five before the men's team, 15s. I'm talking about 15s. A women's team, I believe that they... So when the girls, I, I believe the sevens team are capable of being in the top and maintaining that. Series uh, going from bronze with the right support, with a continued guidance, and I think that's going to happen now, especially with this environment that we've got two gold medal. This is going to be the, for me, the opener to making sure that the right support, the professional high performance support is there all the time for both teams. And yeah, I believe they're capable of being number one. So what's keeping you busy at the moment, Kathy? What's your, what's your main roles at the moment? Um, or running my private practice. <laughs> <laughs> That's in this in this COVID environment, running the this uh, we are back to the government system. Uh, apart from that, um, serving on the uh, I serve on the sports commission board, just ensuring that um, our sporting bodies uh, do have the um, allocated finance and support and resources to allow them to um, to do better, like for post events and things like that. With the um, uh, Oceania um, had the relationship with Oceania Rugby and the uh, ONOC, medical, uh, ONOC uh, Ocean National Committee. We can cement that so that we have the training and education uh, going, interacting both ways. The biggest role I have now is just training and education within the Oceania region, not only in rugby, but in, in other sports too. And as I said, what's keeping me busy? Surviving this COVID. <laughs> Yeah, how, how are you? It's clearly, clearly a very difficult situation for the whole country. Um, you're just one citizen in that country, but um, how are you and your family? Mm. We're good. The family's good. I mean, we've just come out of, uh, my daughter's come out of 28 days of isolation. I've come out of 14 days of isolation. It's not easy, but uh, you learn to, you learn to uh, look around you, the roses we have. Um, people just have, they just got to network, link up with what keeps them going. And having that family support, having the friend support to reach out to is very, very good. Uh, being in the medical fraternity certainly has its challenges, but it also, for me, every challenge is an opportunity. I try not to let, uh, I never allow a challenge to get me down. So yes, it's challenging, but I look at it as an opportunity. Example was uh, last year during COVID, I opened up another practice in Nandi. And that's when Nandi had gone into shutdown because Nandi was our prime case last year. 
So people ask, why are you opening a clinic in Bandy in the middle of a hotspot? And I said, why not? If you can give me a reason not to open, a justifiable reason not to open, then I will. No one could. So we've opened and we're still there and we're still going. So next for me is probably just, I would say, peeling back from the role in the clinic, let the clinic run itself without me. And the clinic has been running itself without me for a long time. So more a back row. I'm taking more of a mentorship role now. And are you still keen to stay involved with ONOC, with Oceania World Rugby going forward? At this stage, yes, because I think we still have some unfinished business. Because outside of Australia and New Zealand, we don't have a lot of women who are, you know, when you look around, you don't see a lot of women putting their hands up into that level. So I'd like to see that go more. Do, do you know, uh, candidates in that scenario, potential women who could be in those roles, do they ever ask you for advice? Oh, yes. And if I see a potential woman and I notice that I haven't seen her application and that, I'll ring her and uh, tell her, I said, why didn't you apply for that position? Oh, ma'am, I don't think I said apply. Get your pen, pen and put it to paper now and do it. So my role is to really just encourage them to come in. You can do it. Just test the waters, go out there and do it.